Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. November is Native American Heritage Month, and later this hour, community co-host Nick Burns is back in conversation with Margaret D. Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. You'll also get to know the folks at the nonprofit Fight Against Domestic Violence, an update on the Gabby Ramos case, as her sister Rocio Cifuentes and her husband Juan Hernandez join us for an update and invite you to a walk in memory of Gabby Ramos. Film Mexico, Salt Lake Film Society's annual celebration of contemporary Mexican cinema, is going on now at the Broadway in downtown Salt Lake City. To find out more, let's pass the microphone to our friends at Artes de Mexico in Utah. Hi, Fanny. Will you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Lara. My name is Fanny Guadalupe Blauer. I am the director of Artes de Mexico in Utah. And Artes de Mexico in Utah is a presenter of this uh, amazing film tour. You help co-curate the panel discussions. I'm sure you weigh in on the films. You have been collaborating with the Salt Lake Film Society for a couple of years now. So why is this film festival important in 2021? Well, there are many different things. The number one is that this is our 10th anniversary to celebrate uh, Film Mexico. And I always like to bring back the story of how this started. This is a story of a student who approached our founder, Susan Vogel, 10 years ago as you know, the idea of why can we have a film tour that depicts what Mexico is. Film is so powerful in terms of understanding our culture and becomes we become sensitive to those matters, right? So Susan brought the idea to the Sadler Film Society and Tori, the director of the Sadler Film Society, uh, loved the idea. And since then, she has embraced this project that I just love to say that it's an idea uh, become a reality because of an idea of the community. So you have just a few screenings left this week. Some are online and some are in theater. Tell us what is still left to choose from. Yes, so today uh, it's uh, you will be able to see today is uh, the premiere movie called Uncle Jim, and it will be uh, played along with a Snake's Mouth and a panel discussion. Uh, those movies will be playing online at 7 and 9 p.m. and in the theater at 7 p.m. And then tomorrow, Thursday night, is the big finish. You will have... Costa Chica, which is a panel of Afro-Mexican community, uh, again at 4, 7, and 9 p.m. in theaters. Uh, so this is really uh, movies that depict our uh, indigenous background for people in South Mexico. Uh, Costa Chica is a, is a movie, it's a document, documentary that focuses on the lives of people from the Costa Chica region, where their culture has been historically denied or not necessarily visible, but they are present. And uh, the Consul of Mexico is presenting also this panel. And I want to say that too, that the Consulate of Mexico has been a a driven force in the presentation of this uh, festival. And Lara, if you allow me, I would love to uh, offer your audience um, a, a coupon so that they can have, if uh, by listening to your show, uh, they can use this code to access the Fringe for free. What's that code? And the code will be F as in Frank, M-A-R-T-E-S-V-I-P. Fanny Blauer of Artes de Mexico in Utah. Check tonight's show notes for a link to that nonprofit, as well as Salt Lake Film Society, a nonprofit as well, and all the screening details for Film Mexico. Let me run that down for you. All right, tonight, 7 and 9 p.m. online, in theater at 7 p.m. for Uncle Jim and Snake's Mouth, the short that precedes the feature. Tomorrow, 4, 7, and 9 p.m. online, 8 p.m. in theater, Costa Chica, and a panel on the Afro-Mexican community. And Amy Beth Aist from Salt Lake Film Society has agreed to extend the Costa Chica screenings online to Friday as well. For all details and that coupon code, FMartesVIP, check tonight's show notes. And now a Zoom conversation with Rocio Cifuentes and Juan Hernandez. Rocio is the sister of Gabby Ramos, 
who was murdered in October by her ex-fiancé. On Saturday, there is a walk to remember Gabby outside of the Taylorsville Police Department. Here's Rocio. I am Rocio Cifuentes. I'm um, Gabby's sister, and this is my husband, Juan Hernandez. Hi, thanks for giving us some time on Radioactive to help amplify uh, this Don't Forget Gabby Ramos walk. What is it that you're going to be asking of the police department and the community? Well, yeah, it's going to be the uh, um, a small walk in the department office in Taylor's building here. So we just want to remember Gabby Ramos. We just want to, you know, don't forget Gabby Ramos because we are looking for justice and it's important to to say it uh, aloud. And we're going to be there. Uh, we invited uh, all the women out there, all the community, Latin community, white community, every, everybody can, can come and enjoy us. Because, you know, uh, this happened to my sister, but it can happen to to every, every woman, you know? Yeah. So yeah. there'll be a march. Um yeah. Around the police department, and the Taylorsville Police Department is approximately 5,400 south and 2,600 west in Salt Lake County. And you're asking folks also to bring signs. What do you want the, the signs to say? Juan Hernandez, can you fill us in on that? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, you just want to, uh, Pacific, you know, uh, we don't have nothing against the police or nothing about that. It's just... Uh, this purpose was was to is uh, to remember to remember that way, you know, she's not forgotten like other cases or something. And uh, I hope uh, we send a message to all the girls and and trouble. Uh, they can come out and you know uh, they they can get help. Uh, the police of issued a warrant for the arrest of her ex-boyfriend, who they believe is in Mexico. But I really want to focus on Gabby's life and what she was trying to do in the community. Rocia, what do you want people to know about your sister, to not forget about her? Yeah, don't forget that uh, she was a really good woman. She was a helper. She used to help a lot of people. That's why our community remember her. Remember her like a, a, a really, really good woman. So that's why we are, uh, we seek to set up precedent that that kind of cases, the police need to put attention, you know, when something happened, they need to put attention and investigating and bringing the murder to justice. That is, uh, that's my uh, principle, my real uh, concern, you know, to bring the murder to justice because at the beginning, you know, they uh, he ran away. He have he has uh, like a fourteen hours, twelve hours to get to Mexico, and it's really really frustrating and sad for me because uh, he's dangerous. Also, we wanna <clears throat> see if you you know it's like a Amber Alert for a kidnapped case, a fugitive. So that way, yeah, a fugitive uh-huh. on the run. Yeah, so uh, they they need to uh, come up with a better way to stop this, you know, to before they get away. Yeah. Well, Juan Hernandez and Rocio, thank you so much for giving us some time. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you for your time because it's important, you know, you know, to to show to, this. To us, so, really yeah. The, you support. Thank yeah. you so much. Just the last the last thing is uh, we demand justice and we will not forget Gabby Ramos. Thank you, Rocio and Juan Hernandez. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the information and the Don't Forget Gabby Ramos walk this Saturday, 1 p.m. at the Taylorsville Police Department. I'm Laura Jones and you're listening to Radioactive. Still to come, Nick Burns talking with author Margaret Jacobs about her new book, After 100 Winters, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. But before we get to that, I wanted to spotlight a nonprofit in our community that is working to raise funds for Housing First and Crisis Cash when it comes to folks experiencing domestic violence. Let's pass that microphone and find out more. Uh, My name is Brooke Muir. I'm the executive director at Fight Against Domestic Violence. We are a Utah-based nonprofit uh, whose mission is to raise awareness and really resources, aka money, for domestic violence victims and survivors. 
I am Rochelle Hill, training coordinator for the Utah Office for Victims of Crime, and now a new advisory board member for the fight against domestic violence. Well, Brooke and Rochelle, thanks for giving us some time so we can get to know the Fight Against Domestic Violence nonprofit. And I'm just curious, you start in 2017 and you've reinvented yourself at least once, Brooke, you were telling me before we started rolling. And it sounds like you're a conduit. Tell us about a little bit more about the mission and how the origin story, rather, of your nonprofit came about. You bet. So our nonprofit started back, like you said, back in 2017. It was founded by some business, local community leaders and business leaders who in their own, they were in a, they had a beauty business. And in that there were a lot of women involved and they heard a lot of stories of um, women living in abusive relationships. And they had used that side gig job to save money as a means of getting out. And um, then one of our board founding board members, her mentor uh, survived a very traumatic uh, domestic violence incident. And that really became the catalyst in the springboard to um, how can we make a difference? What are the gaps in the space and um, how can we help survivors? So that's where it started. And when we looked into what the real gaps are, um, funding was really number one. There aren't, there isn't, if you notice, there isn't a national organization or local before us that is raising money uh, uh, for domestic violence victims and survivors. So that was a, a big space that needed to be filled. And we thought, well, let's give it a shot and do what we can. There are service providers that do that and they have their own fundraising arms, but an entity that just tackles that and then um, grants the money to those service providers. That's what you do. It is. So we work, Utah has 16 service providers um, from Logan to St. George and uh, Tooele to Moab and Blanding. And we have what is called our Housing First and our Flex Fund programs. So we work with case managers. If a client comes in and they need help getting into uh, housing or they need to pay for a car repair. We have helped pay for daycare, um, auto repairs, insurance, all these barriers that they have. Um, we They apply to us for some flex funds or housing first funds, and then we will pay for those items because on average, it takes uh, a survivor seven times before they are successful in leaving a relationship. And one of the major barriers are those financial barriers that they have. If you are looking at having to leave a violent relationship and be homeless or stay in that house where at least you have a roof over your head, that's a really hard decision to make and it's really hard to leave. So we're just trying to make it um help people be as successful as they can in living a healthy, safe, and productive life. So you have the crisis cash flex fund and then housing first. Those are your two main planks when it comes to what you do with the money that folks donate to your nonprofit. I wanted to touch upon what you're just saying, that it takes about seven incidents before someone finally decides to leave. And Rochelle Hill, given your time as a victim services coordinator with West Valley City, and now you're on the advisory board with Fight Against Domestic Violence, I wanted to talk about a few of the facts and bust some myths, because we've had quite a few, unfortunately, domestic homicides in our state. Rochelle, exactly. let's break this down. So seven times. What's going on there? Is it that that pushball? As a friend of mine who works in this space, too, says these are people, largely women, some men who love the partner that is abusing them. Right. And I would I would say in my experience, a lot of people don't leave. And so um, it's really about navigating a more healthy relationship, a less dangerous relationship. And I, I love that you want to break down some of the myths because I think the shame and the isolation is what keeps these relationships so dangerous is um, victims and survivors aren't really willing to reach out to help. It's not like you're complaining about your kidney stones and everyone's like, oh, in my experience, this really helped, right? Like we're not having these open communications about it um, because most people, and I get it because you want to help, you want somebody to do something. Um, but these relationships are incredibly complex. 
And with most survivors, like I can tell you that my children are terrible children and, you know, they're doing things bad, but don't you say anything about my children because then I get really defensive about them. Right. And, and I think survivors are a lot like this too. That's their relationship. And it's really hard to hear criticism of it. I'm guessing one of the myths is that only weak people stay. And I think of the people in my life that I have known who have gone through this, and I don't consider them them weak. I think that's one of the myths we need to bust. Oh, for sure. I think I have worked with victims who have been in law enforcement, who have very advanced degrees, who are high professionals and very influential people. Um, you know, my thing that I find the, the biggest common denominator is kindness, right? Like they generally are the most kind and loving and helpful people that are the ones that usually end up staying because they just think that this they can help solve this person or they can help this other party. So there's some other myths or facts that you'd like people just to be aware of as they look at this topic or the next unfortunate domestic homicide comes around because unfortunately we know that will happen. Right. I think the, you know, the biggest myth I do is that most domestic violence is physical abuse. And I would say, you know, those, those bruises, although they happen and they're very, um, devastating. A lot of victims, it's that emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, this other abuse that you can't see the injuries um, that is also very devastating. So, Brooke, when it comes to Housing First and Crisis Cash, as we're listening to these myths and facts of domestic violence, you can see where these funds come into play when someone is ready to leave or change their situation. Yeah. So in speaking with the service providers, we said, well, what are the major gaps that you have? And they receive a lot of federal funding, um, which is wonderful. And they absolutely need it. They always need more as well. But the without those federal funds, as we know, it's off. There's often a lot of strings, strings attached, <laughs> red tape takes a long time to get anything out and done. So some of those things that you might think about are you might get housing assistance, but that only covers rent. Well, if your security deposit is $1,500, you're never going to be able to come up with that. So, and the housing assistance will not pay for um, security deposits or the little application fees and background checks, all these little things that really add up is where we can come in and say, Yes, we will cover those. We don't, because we're a private nonprofit, we don't have the strings attached and we can get that money out immediately. One of the things that you do at Fight Against Domestic Violence is support Gentle Iron Hawk Shelter in Blanding. So Gentle Iron Hawk was open several years ago and then it um, went through some changes and it closed a couple of years ago and it was sold to the Navajo Nation. And then we had a pandemic hit and things came to the point where they just were not open for a couple of years. And so recently the uh, Utah uh, Navajo health system has taken over the um, running of that shelter. And it was just reopening in October. And so we went down in September to reach out, introduce ourselves and the programs that we have to help their clients and just in our conversation down there, one of the things that they said that they had really need in need of were large size diapers, which interestingly enough, we've heard that from most of the shelters. Um, a lot of the times when people are giving donations, they're thinking kind of of the newborn to size three, and then you've got toddlers and little ones running around that still haven't potty trained and there's no diapers to help them. So um, we did, started a drive down there to collect large size diapers. If you, if your audience has any that they'd like to donate, we are still collecting and we will get those down to the Blanding shelter in the next few weeks. Um, so you can go to our website. We've got an Amazon wish list there as well, but really anything four, five, six pull-ups and up, we would love to take. Well, Rochelle and Brooke, thanks so much for giving us some time to share the message of your nonprofit, Fight Against Domestic Violence. The website one more time, Brooke. FADV.org. That's Brooke Muir and Rochelle Hill of Fight Against Domestic Violence, one of the many nonprofits to remember on Giving Tuesday and as you consider your year end charitable contributions, folks. Check tonight's show notes for a link. When we come back, 
Community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with Margaret D. Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. If you're a homeowner or renter making 200% or less of the federal poverty rate and need help weatherizing your home, Utah Community Action can help. Visit utahca.org for details. Did you know that a portion of your Amazon purchases could benefit KRCL? Support local nonprofits, including KRCL, through Amazon Smile by visiting smile.amazon.com and selecting your preferred organization. Find details under the support tab at krcl.org. Thanks. You're listening to Radioactive on KRCL 90.9. I'm Laura Jones. As you may be aware, our community co-hosts have been off as we rebuild the studios. Hopefully we'll be back live with them in person in the new year. In the meantime, arranging some Zoom conversations for our community co-hosts. And now I'll turn the rest of the time over to community co-host Nick Burns. In conversation with Margaret D. Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters, In Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. Dr. Margaret D. Jacobs is the Chancellor's Professor of History at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Her research and focus is on the American West, specifically gender, women, and children. Her most recent work centers on indigenous peoples, child removal, and policies and movements toward truth and reconciliation. Her newest book, just out from Princeton University Press, After 100 Winters in Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. Dr. Jacobs, welcome to Radioactive. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Oh, no, thank you very much. Your book is certainly historiography, and I want to get to that later. But to beginning, the structure of your book and the way it's organized, I was quite fascinated. You've you've written this in four parts. Part one, uh, titled Our Founding Crimes, offers chapter titles that really fascinated me. Blood, eyes, spirits, bellies, tongues. Um, Not exactly chapter titles that I would think of in an academic history book. So tell me about the chapter names and the overall structure here. So the book isn't really designed for academics. It's really designed for a popular audience. Um, But of course, I hope academics will find something of value and use in it as well. Um, But yes, uh, when I was working on this book, uh, one of the things I've long held to be true is that the experience of colonialism is a very, it's a very intimate, it's a very bodily experience. And uh, so I wanted to convey a sense of the ways in which that might have played out um, by giving these kind of somewhat provocative titles of body parts or body fluids or, or something, you know, that's part of our bodies. And so, for example, the chapter on bellies, I don't really spell this out in the book. You know, I don't say, oh, this chapter is on bellies. It's on, you know, uh, but it's uh, if when people read into that chapter, it's really about the Ponca's experience of starvation uh, when they uh, were pressured to leave the state of Nebraska and uh, the government was trying to force them into exile in Indian territory. And eventually, I mean, it it did so by trying to starve them where they were. And then it did so by on they had to march almost 600 miles from Nebraska to Indian Territory. And then once they got there, they faced starvation again because the government had done nothing to set up any kind of infrastructure for them once they got there. And they arrived too late to plant crops. These these were master gardeners. They were master agriculturalists. and, And they you know, just because of these government policies and fiats, they uh, face starvation. So I called that chapter bellies. And um, so there's little uh, hints uh, throughout the chapters about why I call them by those names. But I really wanted to give the sense of how visceral this experience of colonialism is. Um, and and not just from the position of the indigenous people who suffered from these various policies and practices, but also from the perspective of those who were perpetrating crimes against them, it was also a bodily, visceral experience. Right. And you cover the Sand Creek Massacre in depth, and you write about the Bear River Massacre, which many 
KRCL listeners would know a lot about. Um, you mentioned the Ponkas, who you focus a lot on in the book. And here you are in Lincoln. Their traditional lands were sort of northern Nebraska. You also write about the Pawnees, also uh, in originally land uh, that's now Nebraska and South Dakota. Is is that peculiar or particular to your interests that, that it's a Nebraska connection? Well, that's a great question. Um, as a historian for the last, you know, 25 years or so, I have focused on the relationships between settlers who are non-Indigenous people and Indigenous people. And I've focused a lot on very big comparative studies of the U.S. and Australia and Canada. So, but this book got very personal and I decided that it was very important for me as a settler myself, not just as an academic, but as a settler, to really take a deep dive into the places where I've lived the longest, where I've settled. And those places are Colorado, where I grew up, and Nebraska, where I've lived the last 18 years. So I really wanted to learn much more than I ever have before about the peoples, the indigenous peoples in the places I've lived. and. Um, also about the ongoing truth and reconciliation efforts in places like Colorado and Nebraska. And I, it was kind of serendipitous, I think, to choose Nebraska for a lot of reasons, because um, I think when most people, most Americans hear Nebraska, truth and reconciliation probably isn't the first thing that comes to their mind. <laughs> they, they, you know, they have a lot of other stereotypes about us, but um, Truth and reconciliation is not one of those stereotypes. So, but I actually thought that was really important because, you know, we're a red state. We're a state uh, that people probably wouldn't expect that white settlers are returning land to native nations like the Poncas and the Pawnees, but yet that's happening here. And I start and finish the book with a ceremony that happened uh, on a white settler's farm, the Tanderips farm in uh, central Nebraska, at which they return 10 acres of land to the uh, Ponca tribes. And um, I just think that's a really important sort of message from the book, an underlying message that if truth and reconciliation is happening in central Nebraska, in rural Nebraska, if, you know, it can happen anywhere. And it, it really needs to happen anywhere and everywhere in the United States. And that these grassroots local efforts are really an important part of that uh, process. We don't have to wait for some big national truth and reconciliation process. That would be nice. That, that's an important step for our country to take. But everyday people can be doing this in their own communities and in their own lives, whatever those wherever you know, they are located and whatever influence they may have. So people can do it through their churches. If you're an individual landowner, you have an opportunity. Here, I work at a university. So one of my goals is to get my university to be accountable for its role in dispossessing American Indians and making money off of their lands. Uh, so I, I feel like we all can do something. Uh, in our lives, those of us who are non-Indigenous, to be accountable for these past crimes. So actually, that's a good segue. The, the last part of your book has chapters, skulls, bones, hands, hearts. And as you say, you do look at a couple farm and farm families that have given land back either to grow Indigenous punk of, you know, corn or the Holy Trinity of three. Uh, you mentioned a farmer who's given land to the Pawnees to rebury ancestors. Um, gosh, but there's also with the Poncas, at least it seems, and with many Indigenous groups, a cultural genocide also over the years not a physical starvation and a physical massacring, which we've certainly seen. But yet, in the middle of all that, I, I hear some optimism from you. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were to pick up my book and you only read like the first section, you'd think, oh my God, this is a, this is a dark book. This is a hard read. 
And it, I mean, that's the section that focuses primarily on Sand Creek and on what the Poncas suffered in the 19th century. But the rest of the book, really, I, I did find cause for optimism. And, um, and it's because I met so many people along the way. I did a lot of interviews with my colleague and friend, Kevin Aberesk. Kevin's a journalist uh, based here in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's a member of the Rosebud Lakota Nation. And uh, he and I teamed up in 2018. We started a project called Reconciliation Rising. And we've done a lot of interviews with people. Both we, we created a podcast. Everybody's got a podcast, right? Yes. Please, please. <laughs> so I had to have my podcast. <laughs> so um, we created a podcast and then we decided we would we wanted to make a film because we were finding so many instances of individual and other landowners giving back land to native peoples of their own accord. Uh, we found that some cities were doing this. We found that environmental organizations and churches were doing this, even corporations. So we decided to make a film about this. So that's a long-winded way of saying that we did a ton of interviews and these interviews for me have been so incredibly interesting. I try to weave them throughout the book, um, but they, they just gave me so much optimism about how we might really move forward on these issues because a lot of people are stepping up, a lot of settlers are stepping up and saying, uh, our, we, we need to be accountable for this past. We need to be accountable for these injustices that indigenous people have suffered. And they, they're doing things very locally, regionally, grassroots to make amends for the past. And uh, one of the primary means of doing so is returning land. And uh, so the book, I didn't start out expecting to write so much about that. I really started out thinking I was gonna write almost entirely about big national efforts to deal with the horrific abuse of indigenous child removal, um, which was something I've written about for almost 25 years. And so, um, but things just took a really different turn when we started doing all these interviews. And I wanted to convey a sense of how we might achieve some measure of healing and justice and reconciliation through these kinds of grassroots efforts that people are engaging in right now. Very good. And, and, you know, personally, because I have family members who are Nebraska farm kids, both of my parents, in fact, it was very, I want to say gratifying, even though, of course, I'm a white settler person myself, to read about these folks giving land back, um, helping the, the, the small tribes, the groups that remain. Um, one thing that I found amazingly optimistic in your book, and this might seem kind of roundabout, was part two, where you write about the 19th century and all the efforts and promotions towards reconciliation and restoring lands to some degree that actually were in the national consciousness in the latter part of the 1800s. And yet, you know, it went horribly wrong, I think. Yes. And that was an interesting part that, again, I didn't expect to write that. I, I have actually written a bit about that period before, and I've written a lot about the Friends of the Indian, as they called themselves, this group of white settlers. Um, but I realized in the course of writing the book that there had been this really ripe, or there's, there have been really many ripe moments for reconciliation in the past. And one of these was this era of the 1870s and 1880s. Uh, this was a period, I mean, the Pancas had been removed, but um, a, small group, a small group of them returned on their own to Nebraska. Uh, their chief standing bear was put on trial and uh, he, he mobilized a group of Nebraska settlers who, who wanted to defend his and the other Ponca's rights to return to their lands. And they sent him uh, on a speaking tour of the East. Um, and he went with um, a couple members of the La Flesh family, which are very prominent Omaha Indian family. And Suzette La Flesh, a uh, very young uh, Omaha woman, was his interpreter. And then she became a speaker in her own right. And um, they went East and they, 
I really credit them with starting the Friends of the Indian Movement. Ah. All these uh, people got really, uh, they went to Boston and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. and New York City, and, and they spoke to hundreds and hundreds of people. And um, Standing Bear and Suzette really mobilized a lot of people to become interested. And the first thing these people did was they, they sought to get the Poncas back to their land and the land back to the Poncas. And they focused on other tribes that had lost land as well. But I have to say, it was only a very brief moment at which they did this. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is so important. This was like, they were really kind of uh, practicing restitution, trying to get the land back. Uh, but it only lasted a brief moment. And then they turned to a very different, utterly disastrous solution. <laughs> and that was Indian boarding schools and allotment of Indian land. And so the Indian boarding schools, um, you know, this what I've written about a lot before as a, a practice of indigenous child removal. They weren't really about schooling or education. They were really about severing the, the children's ties to their families and to their tribal nations and to their lands. And um, so I thought it was a great tragedy that this moment that could have resulted in true reconciliation and could have reversed so many of these awful uh, dispossessions that were happening and stopped them in their tracks and reversed them right away, uh, it just all fell apart. And it's really sad. I, I mean, I think that a lot of the friends of the Indian had a very paternalistic view that they knew what was best. And um, I also think it was really hard for them to face up to their complicity in this, that you know their families were benefiting from the dispossession of American Indians. And um, so uh, I, it's interesting you find that an optimistic part of the book. I wonder why, why do you say that? Well, just that I, it was, gosh, I often think of the notion that history is written by assassins, right? The victors get to tell the stories and I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about this period. You mentioned a, a particular book and a famous uh, woman, a white woman, who had written a book and took up the cause of helping. And I just, I was, I was gratified to find that there were people thinking of helping even back then, even though, like you say, it went terribly wrong. It's like, we'll make boarding schools and so on. Um, yeah. Maybe maybe it just reaffirmed my faith that history is written by assassins <laughs> because this was all happening. You know, these the speaking tour back east, we had the rise of the KKK. We had the end of Reconstruction in the South, the, the legalization, if you will, of Jim Crow. All this was going on at the same mm -hmm. time, really, that you had this group of people. That, and maybe there was some overlap. I think you cover that in the book to some degree between people advocating on the on the on the side of freed slaves mm -hmm. and also the indigenous cultures. But again, history books I got as a kid in Michigan and out west and around and books my kids got, they know. Yeah. <laughs> no. None of that 19th century um movement towards reconciliation or restoring lands. That's that's a word that blows my mind. Yeah. Restoring the land. Powerful. Yeah. And you know, I one of the reasons I wanted to include that is because Sometimes when I'm out speaking about my work, somebody will say something to me like, well, you know, it's all very good for us to be critical of what they did in the 19th century, but that was just how everybody, everybody thought. And I want to say, you know, no, that's not how everybody thought. Of course, Native Americans didn't think that at all. And then for white settlers, there were many who were incensed by these injustices and really wanted to do something. But I think you're really right that their history is kind of, um, you know, academics might be aware of it, but the general public in, doesn't yeah. know much about it. And it makes me think it's the same for us today. We tend to know more about the really awful abuses that are happening, but we don't know about these people who are seeking and creating reconciliation in their communities today. And so that is, I, I wanted to cover what reconciliation efforts have been in the past and what ones are today. And I wanted to also put this work in, in an international context as well, because this is going on in Canada, Australia, and New Zealand uh, in a very robust way. 
certainly in Canada with the discovery of hundreds of baby graves at the boarding schools. Um, speaking of not everyone thinking alike in the 1800s, I was very intrigued, and you cover this in depth, and it's a brutal part of the book, the Sand Creek Massacre. Again, once again, troops, soldiers massacring women, children, the elderly. Um, but you also write in depth about soldiers who were there and refused to take part, whereas mm -hmm. the soldiers that went on and did the killing got feted in parades and so on. There were officers who spoke up and tried to raise alarms about the, you know, what we would call crimes against humanity today. Absolutely. And again, history that's largely been, gosh, overwritten by the assassins. Yeah, uh, that's a really good point about Sand Creek is uh, there's an ongoing contest uh, of people who want to interpret it very differently. And right after it occurred, it seemed like I mean, I really think of Sand Creek as the big lie of the hmm. 19th century. I mean, there were a lot of them, <laughs> yeah. but this was one, one big lie of the 19th century, because even though there were many investigations of what happened at Sand Creek, and in part they were because of these two white soldiers who spoke out, their names were Silas Soule and Joseph Kramer, and they were, they were ordered to carry out this massacre, but they refused and they refused to allow the troops under their command to, to carry out the massacre. And then they immediately reported what they had seen to their uh, higher officers and they testified in trials about it. And, you know, but that's not the version of history that became known uh, for a long, long time, Sand Creek was considered or was called a battle, not a massacre. And uh, your listeners might be really interested to learn. If they want to learn more about it, I'd really recommend they read Ari Kelman's book called A Misplaced Massacre, which details how it went from uh, being called a battle to a massacre. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, it's a... Uh, there's just this ongoing kind of almost cultural war over how to interpret Sand Creek. I would say the majority of people now realize it was an atrocity. It was a massacre. It was a genocidal act. Uh, and I mean, but even at the time, Colonel Chivington, who was in charge of it, who had ordered it, he uh, was found uh, that, I mean, people, all these four reports of uh, investigations found him to be, uh, have committed a horrible, heinous murders, mass murder, but he got off scot-free because uh, he, with, uh, he left the military before he could be court-martialed. And um, so, so, and still today, I mean, we have, we have places named uh, in, there's a town of Chivington, Colorado. There's Mount Evans yeah. for the governor of Colorado who'd been in cahoots with uh, Chivington to carry out the massacre. So it's a good point. The assassins do try to uh, frame the narrative, uh, but there's a big pushback now against that narrative in, in Colorado. Well, I think of, I think of here how the Bear River Massacre is, there's increasing knowledge of that. There's a movement to purchase the land back to create a memorial. And yet, of course, for decades, if not perhaps a hundred years, we've had a huge Custer's Last Stand national monument. Um, when the white man lost, we get a big monument and the Sand Creek and Wounded Knee and Bear River, they kind of get washed away. Um, your own work, Dr. Jacobs, as we were saying, you've looked a lot at the notion of removal of children, the history of women, uh, and now, of course, this truth and reconciliation with indigenous peoples. And we mentioned earlier the work in the, in the 1800s and the work of Helen Hunt Jackson and her book, A Century of Dishonor, again, trying to do reconciliation work over 100 years ago. I wonder, this seems kind of gendered. Um, it isn't only the women on these Nebraska farm families that are giving the land back, but the one farm 
you know, that is matriarchal. It was her family's farm back from 100 years ago that they're now having the punkas come every year, plant crops and so on. So is, are, are these issues, do you think, looking at these issues gendered in some way? What a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I've always thought they are to some extent. Um, I think white women were particularly moved in the 19th century by what Native people had experienced. And the first advocacy, national advocacy group for Native Americans that was run by non-Native Americans was the white, uh, was the Women's National Indian Association. Um, they predated a men's group called the Indian Rights Association by three years. And um, they were very, very active in the Friends of the Indian and as you mentioned, Helen Hunt Jackson was a really important 19th century uh, white settler advocate for Native peoples uh, who really focused a lot on restitution. That was her primary uh, effort. And, um, you know, it's today I, I didn't really it is true there you still see a lot of uh, women, both indigenous and non-indigenous working together. Uh, a couple people I profile in the book are Deb Echohawk and Ronnie O'Brien. And Deb is a member of the Pawnee Nation and she's the keeper of the seeds for the Pawnee Nation, which is a really important job. Um, and they, the Pawnee have 19 different corn varieties that they used to grow. And uh, through a partnership with a group of white farmers in Nebraska, led by Ronnie O'Brien. Uh, Deb and Ronnie have brought back 17 of those varieties and they grow those 17 varieties on about 20 different farms that white landowners have designated part of their farm for this purpose. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of traditionally agriculture was the work of native women and uh, so they have that really close connection with the land. Um, and you do see a lot of women uh, engaged in these reconciliation efforts. And that's not to say that men aren't too, um, you know. Right, right. But, but it is, I think, um, something that seems to appeal a lot to women to that they want to further this effort, whether they're indigenous or non-indigenous there, there's a real strong desire, uh, I think, to one, get back to one's land and grow one's food on it again. And, and then to foster these more positive relationships in, in After 100 Winters, you also examine who gets to tell the stories. You mentioned indigenous women and, and white settler women both involved in this. But I, that's one aspect of the book that I thought was quite fascinating that you don't often see is you're sort of meta-examining history. It's like, do I have a right to tell this story or who gets to tell this story? And I really appreciated you unpacking that. And I, I don't know if all mm -hmm. your work sort of centers on who gets to tell the story, but I did really appreciate that in this book. Well, I wouldn't say that all my work does, but that it, but I always have been thinking about the ethics of uh, how we tell these stories and these histories and what is my role as a non-Indigenous white settler historian. Uh, and, you know, I never have quite figured out the, the, my perfect role, uh, but I do think uh, one part of that is always to be looking at the settler part of the history, you know, to think about what, what did it mean for settlers uh, who participated in these histories? Uh, what did it mean to participate in a battle, for example, or I shouldn't call it, it's not a battle. What did it mean to participate in a massacre of Cheyenne and Arapaho people and to, to participate in such brutality, how could that not affect you? So then I think, you know, so I, I kind of ruminate on that a lot in the book. And then, so what did it mean to be a white woman in the 19th century who was incensed by slavery and who was incensed by 
the injustices Native people were facing. Um, and, and, you know, what did it mean, though, to be a white woman who was incensed by these things and yet eventually ended up promoting other programs that were just as disastrous and just as damaging? Um, so I've always thought that's really important to look at that side of the equation and that maybe that's something I can bring uh, to the table or bring or contribute to a kind of big collective effort by a lot of historians and other people to uncover and make sense of and then make amends for this history. Well, your, your career and the things you examine and that's certainly true of After 100 Winters, I think, is just the basic historiography that you're perpetually engaged in how the interpretation of these events shifts over time. And that's what we were talking about a few minutes ago, that there are events that, of course, we didn't know about. And I know I've only got a few more minutes to be able to talk with you. So quickly, I really like the chapter where you get into the hardest word. Mm. The hardest word, and this applies not only to the United States, but Australia, New Zealand, Canada. Um, so talk a little bit, if you would, about that hard word. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that all truth and reconciliation efforts must involve apologies. They must involve saying one is sorry. Um, and yet some apologies are. Uh, are helpful and valuable and others are not. And so one of the things I learned was that the apologies that the New Zealand uh, governments have been offering to various Maori iwis, as they call them, that's their kind of word for a tribe, uh, have been really meaningful because they're not the New Zealand government has never issued a big blanket apology to all Maori people, but the Maori people have brought many, many land claims and other grievances to the government. And uh, the government created a way for them to do this, in fact. And then as a result of those claims, there's been a number of settlements and every settlement has involved an apology. And the apologies are extremely specific. They're historically grounded they are lengthy because they go into the history of what occurred and they acknowledge it and then they make an apology. And that's a really meaningful apology. One, it's by the right person or representative. It's from the government to the people who were wronged by that government. And two, it's very public uh, so that everybody knows about it. And three, it's very specific. Those are really good apologies. The governments of Canada and Australia have issued forceful apologies around indigenous children and their removal from their families. Those have been, I think, really meaningful apologies too, because again, they were very specific about a particular harm. Um, but you, know, you may know or you may not know that uh, President Obama actually signed an apology resolution but it was buried in a defense bill and he never publicly apologized to anybody. And the apology itself, it's extremely general. It, and it, you know, it's, it's just, we're sorry for all the bad things we did to you basically. Um, so it's a really bad apology because it wasn't public. Wasn't public. It wasn't specific. It wasn't specific. And, uh, nobody knows about it. It's, you know, buried in this bill. And um, so that, that chapter uh, is important to me um, because I do think it's really important that any truth and reconciliation involve apology, but not just any old apology will do. And the other part of it is that apology isn't enough. It's really just a, I see apology as the bridge between truth and reconciliation. It's the start of reconciliation. It's not the end of it. Do you see those farmers in northern Nebraska who've given back land? Do you see them saying and giving specific apologies? Absolutely. Or is land itself an apology? No, absolutely. Uh, either, you know, 
uh, watching the, the recording of the ceremony where they handed back the land or we did an interview with them about it. They talk about, um, you know, they don't, they don't formally say, we are sorry on behalf of so-and-so for this. No, they just like, we are trying to do what we can. Uh, and, and, you know, this is one small step we can do toward acknowledging the past, apologizing for the past, and, and making some form of amends for the past. Um, so they do, I think, consciously, they do apologize. And I, I think it's incredibly meaningful because it's, it's, it's very specific. And I think these land returns are very meaningful, too, because these are the homelands of the Pawnee people, the Ponca people. These aren't just any old lands. These are the ones they have a, a very strong spiritual connection to. Um, so, yeah, apologies. I, I really Please. liked that in, in, in the case of the Ponca people, that particular white farm family met those folks in their joint protest of the Keystone Pipeline. Right. So I thought, wow, haven't we come a full circle? So good for them. A couple more questions, and I know we have to let you go. You mentioned your work with the University of Nebraska, and, and what could a university do in terms of, you know, all the land that, that the university has? Uh, my day job, as listeners know, is with Salt Lake Community College, and we've installed plaques, and I thought I would just read this to you. Salt Lake Community College is located on the Native American shared territory of the Goshute, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute people. We honor the original ancestors of this land and also offer respect to our other tribal communities. We acknowledge this history to cultivate respect for and advocate with our indigenous students and communities still connected to this land, end quote. It's not an apology, but it's not something I would have envisioned Salt Lake Community College doing when I started here almost 20 years ago. Yeah, I do think, you know, we're seeing more of these land acknowledgements uh, at the center where I work at the University of Nebraska. We've we've also installed a plaque that has sort of similar sentiments. Yeah, okay. And, you know, many of my colleagues here are working They've done a lot of research on the land acknowledgement. It's not something you can just do like that. You really need to do a lot of thought and research about the people who were here. But there is a big movement to get the whole university to adopt this. And I'm pretty sure that's going to happen eventually. Um, but it is interesting. The land acknowledgements, you may know that a lot of people are quite critical of land acknowledgements here in the U.S. primarily. Um, in Canada and Australia, they've been doing them about 40 years. And, um, and there's some criticism there. But, but I would say the general criticism is it's not enough. You know? it's, it's, so, it's too symbolic. Hmm. And, but I think symbolic action is really important. I mean, I think apologies, you could see by themselves, are symbolic. You could think of land acknowledgments as just symbolic, just words. But... Um, I think they're really important as a, a major step in this process, but I do agree with my, my friends who are critics of these things that it's not enough. It's a start, but it all kind of helps us focus on how important this issue is, and it helps us start conversations about what's the next step then. So if, if we acknowledge this land, is there a way that we can actually return some of this land? Uh, or create joint ventures where Native people can use this land, uh, e even if it's not in their own, you know, if, even if they don't hold title to it. No, very good. I mean, is it glass half full, glass half empty, I guess, to be really superficial? But in terms of Salt Lake Community College, I'm conscious of how, at least for one of our campuses, the, the history used to be this used to be a farm. Um, <laughs> so the history went back 100 years, but it didn't go back 200 years. Um, but a question I want to leave you with um, before we have to say goodbye. Um, with all these apologies and with this move towards reconciliation and finding these, you know, the burials of these children who were stolen from their families, um, we still see that Western values reign supreme. These white farmers are giving back 
the land. Um, and we also see around the West, indigenous tribes are buying back their own land. They're, they're coming up with the money to purchase their own land, um, which seems a little bit weird. It's like having to buy back um, your own bike after it's stolen yeah. from you. And I wonder what you think of that sort of extremely Western values approach. Well, you know, I one of the things I learned in this book is that pretty much immediately when Native people were dispossessed, they started fighting to get their land back. So they're using every means they can. And um, whether it's, uh, you know, protesting, making claims to the government, bringing their grievances, you know, to the body that used to exist in the United States called the Indian Claims Commission, um, or whether they're using money that they revenue they make and buy back land or whether they work with, um, you know, a settler individual or organization to get land back. Um, I, I agree with you. I think it's absurd that Indian people should have to buy back land that was stolen from them. Um, but I think, you know, that land is so important to native people. Their homelands are so important that the, that they'll use all these different means. And, um, I think about the ways I, as a settler, can help that along, whether it's through maybe I donate to uh, an, an effort that a tribe is making to raise money to buy back land. Uh, you know, I'm hoping my book will encourage people who own land to return some of it to Native peoples. Uh, uh, you know, and universities can do these things. Churches own a lot of land. They own a lot of Native land. Uh, they ran a lot of the boarding schools that children went to. There's so much people can do. We don't have to be hostage to this, this history of uh, abuse and injustice. You know, we, I really feel truly that we can overcome this and that we can uh, address it and make meaningful progress. Yeah, I mean, it goes back around to some environmental groups too, working with indigenous peoples. I think of maybe some of the Nature Conservancy work, or we could even think of the Bears Ears National Monument here in Utah that's been so contentious. But I hope that's your next book and we can talk again. <laughs> that would be fun. Radioactive community co-host Nick Burns in conversation with Margaret Jacobs, author of After 100 Winters in Search of Reconciliation on America's Stolen Lands. Another great conversation during this Native American Heritage Month and food for thought as we approach Thanksgiving. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Margaret and her book. I'm Laura Jones, and that is Radioactive. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting Listener's Community Radio of Utah. Have a great night.